called the YouVersion Bible app, and there is a live event in there. If you like to follow along, there's, there's an electronic community card you could fill out. Everything you could ever need in life is found in your phone. So uh, in, in, <laughs> there you go. And so use that YouVersion Bible app. There's great reading plans in there too. Uh, I really encourage you to get on a year-long Bible reading plan. If you haven't started, start now. Uh, the great thing about it is that it, it starts one year whenever you start. So if January 28th is your starting point, you'll finish a year from now on Jan, Jan, January 28th. And I would just really encourage you to do that. The other thing that we're talking a lot about is the Echo Prayer app. Um, this is a year where we're focusing on prayer and encouraging all of us to grow in our prayer life. And so Justin's got a picture of the Echo Prayer app there for you. And uh, one of the things that uh, I've discovered as we're using this tool is we have a, all our prayer requests are in a list, but uh, I have to add you to the list. And so if you download that and sign up, uh, just get, shoot me an email at dave at 50263.org and I, I will get you added to that prayer list so you can uh, use this and be praying for each other here at Waukee Community Church. And so... Uh, um, also, with the Seeking Shalom class, Doug mentioned that Jimmy John's has given us a 15% discount. But uh, that, even if you're not coming to the class, you can still probably get in on that. And so, <laughs> I'm just saying, if you want a 15% off for lunch, Waukee Community Church is the place to be here. So, All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Today we're going to be talking about temptation. And to really dig into this, we have to understand that Paul is offering us a, a warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, I've seen some crazy warning signs in my life, and uh, maybe not as crazy as some of these road signs here, but this first sign here you'll see is just kind of a road sign that's just honest, right? <laughs> like, yeah, just try to figure that one out, right? Uh, you know, sometimes warning signs can be a bit contradictory. Like, for instance, this next one here. I don't know. I mean, I just, I can't even understand the context of this. And then sometimes uh, warning signs are just downright honest, right? And uh, there you go. Yes, that was somewhere in Alabama, I can promise you. So listen, uh, I, was th I was thinking about road signs. And uh, on the, if you ever have spent any time on Iowa roads, you'll come across a billboard, one of those digital billboards where they change the message. I was driving, oh, a few months ago, and I saw the road sign. It said something like, 182 traffic fatalities on Iowa roads this year. I don't know the exact number, but it was something like that. And as, I, as you look at that, the, the message is really pretty clear. The idea is, hey, be careful when you drive because that could be you. I mean, this could happen to you. You could be one of the 182. And today in our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is doing something like that for us. He is throwing up a warning sign and saying, listen, let's look at the past together because this too could be you. This could happen to you. So we've been in this series in 1 Corinthians for a long time. We started last year. We took a break uh, for Jonah and for Christmas series. And, and now we're jumping back into the second half, half of 1 Corinthians series. And what I would always remind you of every week is, is this basically the idea of 1 Corinthians is how do we live in a world where we are children of a new reality in Jesus Christ, 
But all around us exists the, the old reality. We were children of darkness, but now we're children of light. We were orphans, but now we're adopted, sons and daughters. We were dead, and now we're alive. And these are, are the message of this series in 1 Corinthians. And Corinth was a city in Greece Paul had planted this church where the old reality was on full display all around them. And as Christians, they were asking the question, well, how do we function in this? And so we've been doing a couple things over the last uh, few weeks. Way back in chapter uh, 7, the Corinthians had asked Paul questions. And he's writing this letter to him. He says, okay, let's answer the questions that you asked me now. And so he does a Q&A, and the very first thing they talked about is, what's marriage look like in the new reality? And so back in 1 Corinthians 7, he answered that. And then in 1 Corinthians 8, they asked him about this issue of food sacrifice to idols. If they know meat or food has been sacrificed to an idol, should they eat it or not? And the principle that comes out of that spans the next three chapters. The principle is, you're free in Christ. You have the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but you should give up your rights for the benefit of your brother and sister in Christ. That message, giving up our rights as Christians, has spanned the last three chapters. And, and in the second half of chapter nine that Mike Shields preached and did such a great job last week, he really talked about giving up our rights for the influence of the gospel in those who don't know Christ. Abandoning legalism and embracing giving up our rights for the benefit of others. And he encourages us to be disciplined in this. He talks about, uh, you know, being disciplined as a runner in the end of chapter 9. And that kind of leaves us where we are today. And, and now Paul wants to say, listen, lest you get a little too cocky in your life, I need to warn you as Christians from the history of God's people, because if I don't throw up a warning sign for you, you may fall into the same tension. Because as Christian. There is a constant temptation in our lives. You're tempted. I'm tempted. Each one of us knows temptation. And as a Christian, the, the, the Christian life, this new reality is kind of like a tightrope. Walking a tightrope. Here, This guy on the screen here is Nick Walenda. In 2012, they stretched a guide wire across Niagara Falls. And, and there he is on the bottom right of the screen uh, doing the tightrope. He started in the United States, crossed over Niagara Falls, and into Canada. We were just there in Niagara Falls last summer. And uh, first of all, it's very wet there. Like it's, all, it's always, I can't even imagine what this was like. He took 25 minutes to cross, completely cross, over the river, over the falls from United States and ended in Canada. And, uh, and of course, when he got into Canada, I don't know if it was a moment of humor or whatnot, but he was met by two Canadian border officials who checked his passport. I'm serious, right? Like, what if he forgot his passport? <laughs> like, I'm sorry, you got to go back. Like, I can turn him around and send him back. But, you know, as I was thinking about him balancing, he actually ran the, the last uh, 10 meters or so on the tightrope. It was crazy. But as I was thinking about this, this is kind of a representation of what it's like for us Christians, for we who are part of God's family through the blood of Jesus, through the sacrifice that he offered for us, through the power of his resurrection, we live in this new reality. But we kind of are walking a tightrope. 
ready to plunge back into the old reality at any moment. And here we are fighting this temptation on a daily or hourly or minutely way. We're constantly fighting this temptation to fall and plunge back into the old reality. And so the question is, how do we fight this temptation? Well, we do so, Paul says, by looking at the example of God's people from the past 3,500 years. Paul wants the Corinthians to know, hey, you're no different. God's people have been struggling with this temptation for millennia. Your struggle is nothing new and you're not alone. 1 Corinthians was written in the first century after Christ died and rose. So from Paul's perspective, the events he's going to discuss today are about 1,500 years old. From our perspective, they're 3,500 years old. Regardless, what Paul wants us to know is that we can find some warning signs or examples from the history of God's people that will help us in our struggle to find victory over temptation. So I have three things I want to talk to you about today from the text. I think Paul has three ideas that, where we can find victory over temptation. And the first idea found right away in, in verses 1 to 5 is don't get cocky. If you want to find victory over temptation, don't get cocky. Let's jump into the text. Paul says in uh, chapter 10, verse 1, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under a cloud. I do not want you to be ignorant. That's the first thing I just want to point out to you here is this word ignorant means to be without knowledge. Now, we have talked about this at length in 1 Corinthians, but knowledge was a big deal in Corinth. They, the Greek word knowledge or gnosis has this idea for the Corinthians and for Greek culture of having a secret wisdom or knowledge that made one part of an elite status. And what Paul is saying is, listen to all you who think you know it all, you super wise, super secret club elitists who have knowledge. I don't want you to actually be ignorant. Paul is slapping them in the face. If, this, if they were reading this letter, Paul's hand would have come out of the letter and slapped them a few times and then gone back in. It's, it's an insult to them. He's saying, you think you got it all figured out? Don't get cocky. You're actually kind of ignorant. Let me give you a lesson from history. And so he's going to talk about spiritual privilege here. And Paul is hearkening back to Israelites' history that for Paul 1,500 years earlier when Moses led the Israelites up out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea and they spent time in the wilderness before after 40 years they went into the promised land. And he's going to use this period of the Exodus and these 40 years in the wilderness as an example. And what he says is, in a sense, it, um, is, hey, the Israelites had the same kind of spiritual privilege, believers, that you do. Don't get cocky. All right, the, the text continues. I don't want you to be ignorant. Our forefathers, he's talking about the Israelites, were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. 
Now, Paul is intentionally bringing up two water illustrations, a cloud and a sea. The sea is easy. We know the, uh, the, the idea that the Israelites passed through the Red Sea. God parted the waters, and they passed through the water to dry ground on the other side. And when the Egyptians chased them, the waters collapsed on them. The parting of the Red Sea is a pretty well-known event to most people. But what was this cloud about that he's talking about? Well, you might remember that as the Israelites exited Egypt, as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, every time they broke camp, a cloud by day would, would come and would lead them, or a, a pillar of fire by night would lead them. And Paul is referencing again here a cloud. It, it's water. He's taking two water references. Well, what's this about? Well, he's talking about baptism. He's relating this. Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul is very clearly relating this to their baptism that these believers would have had in Christ. Here, baptism as everywhere means identification. We get hung up on baptism. We think, you know, are we supposed to sprinkle or are we supposed to dunk or what are we supposed to do? Babies, we get all, what does it mean? What's going on? Baptism we practice baptism by immersion here of believers because we believe that's what the practice of the New Testament is. But baptism at its core, the meaning of what happens is when we put someone under the water and bring them out, they are identifying with Jesus in his death. And when they come out of the water, that person is identifying with Jesus in a resurrected life. It's this identification picture, and they're identifying with all those other believers in a community who have called on Jesus Christ. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, hey, the Israelites had the same kind of identification piece. They had a spiritual baptism with Moses. You have a spiritual baptism in Christ. Every believer, friends, and just take a time out for just a second, every believer should be baptized. Is this a requirement for salvation? No, if you're asking that, you're asking the wrong question. Baptism is just simply an idea of obedience. I want to have a visual symbol and picture of the fact that I am identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you have not been baptized, you should be. I'd love it, man. We'll put a tank out here and we'll get you dunked. I mean, I just think this is so great. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be baptized. I don't care if you've been a believer for 20 years and you've just never been baptized or if you've been a believer for five minutes. You should be baptized. I would encourage that so strongly because it's this beautiful symbol of identification. Paul is saying, listen, you believers... You have a spiritual privilege in identifying with Christ. Your spiritual ancestors, the Israelites, they had something like that with Moses. Now he continues in verse 3. He's going to talk about another spiritual privilege that they have. They all drank, they all ate, excuse me, the same spiritual food. Verse 4, they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. All right. Let me give you some backstory here as to what's going on. When the Israelites were wandering around in, in the desert, they, they didn't have a good track record, okay? 
Like we, we got a lot of examples of them just blowing it, but they tended to grumble a lot. Every time they'd get hungry or every time something would go wrong, they'd say, Moses, how did you lead us out here into the wilderness? We were so much better off when we were in chains, slaved in Egypt. You know, we had all the best fruits and vegetables, and here we are going to die in the wilderness. What have you done? And so God would, would always seem to meet them in their grumbling. One example is that is manna. One day they go out from their tents and they want bread, and, and there's this white flaky stuff on the ground that's like bread. And, and they're, they say, oh, well, we're supposed to eat it. Okay. And then they say, like, what is it? I mean, they have no idea what it is, so they call it manna. That's what it means in, in Hebrew. Manna means what is it? They don't know what to call it, so they call it what is it? Um, and then, you know, later on they grumble about meat, and then so God provides birds, quail for them to eat, and, and he just takes care of them. He provided this spiritual food for them. And then he also provided a, a spiritual cup, drink, Later on, the same thing. They're thirsty. Moses, you're terrible. We were so much better off when we had all the water we wanted in Egypt. Oh, it was so good those days. And God provides from them a rock. Now, what's more is Jewish tradition. And remember, Paul was trained as a Jewish rabbi before he came to Christ. Jewish tradition had said by that time that, that the Israelites took this rock, Moses, the water came out of a rock and, and gave the Israelites something to drink. And, and Jewish tradition says they just picked up that rock and took it with them. Now that's not something we have in the Bible. That's Jewish tradition. But Paul is kind of running off his training here. And he's saying this idea that, by the way, they took that water with them wherever they went. Paul is going to identify these as spiritual bread and spiritual water, a spiritual nourishment. And he's saying that these are symbols that we have Jesus with us. In fact, we know that Jesus, before he was incarnate as Christ, as Jesus, excuse me, Christ was before he was incarnate in a human being in a body, he was a pre-existed, he was active in, in, in the Old Testament. And, and Paul is saying, and by the way, that was the very presence of Christ. So here's the connection. Just as they, just as you Christians have a privilege of being nourished by communion, by being, finding spiritual nourishment in Christ, by taking the bread that represents his body, by taking the cup that represents his blood covering over our sins, by doing this together and reminding ourselves all over again that Christ's death covers over our sins in Christ. We have this great privilege. Just as we have this spiritual privilege to participate in that, we weren't the only ones that had spiritual privilege. The Israelites had a spiritual privilege too. And so here Paul points to the two ordinances that we celebrate in the Christian church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, to say just as you have a spiritual privilege, you weren't the only ones. Here's the point. If you are, as Christians, not the, you're not the first people of God, right? We're not. We're not the first ones to experience a spiritual privilege. God's people have experienced this blessing for really almost 6,000 years. And yet, even though God's people from history past have experienced spiritual privilege, look at what he says about our spiritual ancestors. Nevertheless, verse 5, they had all this spiritual privilege. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. 
Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Okay, so in, in our movie culture, we have this whole, you know, like this horrific, you know, mowing people down, bodies everywhere, right? Like some kind of zombie apocalypse scene or something like that. And, and that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is rather referring to what happened when the Israelites went up to the town of Kadesh Barnea on the southern shores of what would be the promised land, and they sent 12 spies to take out the land. You might remember this story. Ten of the spies came back and said, we can't do this. Nope. Two of the spies came back and said, we got this. You know, with God, we can do anything. And the Israelites listened to the ten, and God disciplined. He said, this whole generation is going to pass away before the next generation will be raised up and go into the promised land. So over 40 years, their bodies, as they died, were scattered across the desert. They were spiritually privileged and yet God was not pleased with them. Paul's saying, don't get cocky. Don't get cocky. Just because you're the people of God doesn't mean you're going to automatically live pleasing to God. Spiritual privilege is not a guarantee. Every Christmas, my kids get presents. All six of them get a present. Uh, I'm And the presents for our children are not based on their behavior, right? I am not Santa, so I'm not making a list of what's naughty and nice and giving presents based on behavior. They get presents, every one of them, on Christmas morning because they're my children. And that's why they get them. Does that mean automatically that I'm very pleased with all their behavior all the time? It most certainly does not, (laughs) right? That's what Paul's saying here. You can have spiritual privilege. You can be the people of God, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that you are automatically pleasing to God. Well, interesting. You see, if you're a child of God, don't get cocky. You might think you've got this temptation thing under control. Don't get cocky. See, is it possible that as a Christian, you feel like I've got all, you've got all the right boxes checked. <laughs> you know, it's called checkbox Christianity. Check, I prayed my prayer. Check, I was baptized. Check, I go to church more than most. Check, my family is Christian. Like, I, I, I have a Christian heritage. Check, 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 check the boxes. Is it possible that you could have all the boxes checked and still not be pleasing to God? Or another question is this. Don't get cocky. Is it possible that you could be so confident in your new reality that you're never considered whether you're squandering the privileges of the new reality? Maybe. Vin uh, Baker. I just read this uh, article in, in, uh, uh, in either USA Today or Sports Illustrated. Now, Vin Baker was an NBA player with the Milwaukee Bucks and a bunch of other teams. Played 13 seasons in the NBA. It's estimated that over 13 seasons, Vin Baker, starting in 1993, he made $100 million over 13 seasons. Now, um, in 2015, he declared bankruptcy and he began working at Starbucks. I'm not kidding you. Made $100 million working at Starbucks. Sports Illustrated reported that 78% of former NFL athletes declare 
bankruptcy after they are done in the NFL. They're like, what? How could that be? I mean, if $100 million, if he only spent half of it and had 50, he could put it in an interest-bearing account. And, you know, even if he made like 2%, that guy should be set. What is he doing? He just, how could he squander all this? Ignorance? Doesn't know how to manage money? Probably. Could it be cockiness? Maybe. An unwillingness to learn how to properly manage money? Maybe. But the point is, so many have squandered the treasure they have been given. In Christ, Paul's saying, don't get cocky. You've got a spiritual example from ancient history, from your past, from your spiritual ancestors, that they squandered it. Don't you do it. How do you find victory over temptation? First of all, just don't get cocky about it. Second thing that Paul has to say is be aware of your cravings. Be aware of your cravings. Paul is going to continue in verse 6. He says, now these things, talking about the Israelites, occurred as examples. They occurred as examples. This word in Greek is type or pattern. These existed as examples. But as examples is as good a word as any. Um, we should learn from our past. George Santanaya, the Harvard philosopher, famously said that those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Paul is saying the same thing. You're going to do the same thing here. So now he says, you first need to then, secondly, you need to identify or be aware of your cravings. He continues, verse, uh, verse 6, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Setting your hearts on evil things could literally be translated, these things happen to keep you from lusting after evil. (laughs) If you want to stop your cravings of the old world, you first must be aware of what they are. And history should remind you of those things. Paul's now going to give four examples of cravings or lustings after evil that are aware of what they're craving to make them aware of this. He's going to give them four examples. First example here we see in verse verse 7. Look at the text. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. This is a a reference to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. They went to Mount Sinai. You remember Moses left them at the base of the mountain. All million, million and a half people went up to the mountain where he was there for 40 days. God was in this 40 days meeting with Moses and sketching out the Ten Commandments. Moses was going to come back with this beautiful new law for the people. One of those commands on this tablet that he's holding is don't make a graven image (laughs) of me. And you know what the Israelites are doing at the bottom? Aaron's collecting all their gold and, uh, and putting it in a fire and making a golden calf, an idol. I love Aaron's excuse, by the way, when Moses comes back. He, he says, listen, I, I told the people to give me their gold, and, and I threw it in the fire, and poof, out came this golden calf. It wasn't my fault. I, I mean, it's hilarious. But these people are craving. They're so craving uh, a, a, some kind of tangible representation of God, some kind of guidance or leadership that they're willing to make an idol after only 40 days. They're ready to do this. 
This Moses fellow has abandoned us, they say. The first example of temptation that he gives them is this temptation of idolatry. And he's saying, you Christians, we create idols all the time. I mean, all you gotta do is look at your life for three seconds and you'll know what your idol is. I've heard it said, uh, you know, look at your checkbook if you wanna know what you worship, right? Like uh, uh, now nobody uses checkbooks anymore. So I guess look at your bank statement or your credit card statement. We'll know what your idol is. We're tempted. We have cravings. He keeps going. Second uh, example of uh, a craving. Verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. This refers to uh, something that happened in the book of Numbers. And in uh, Numbers chapter 25, the Israelites, while they're wandering in the wilderness, kind of got bored with this whole God thing. And they decided to go and they ran into some different people, the Moabites. And the Moabites had their own false God. And, and, uh, and they went out and they found the Moabite women and they kind of thought they were hot. And so they went and as part of the worship of the Moabite God, they had sex with all these women from, from Moabite culture. And this was not only deeply offensive to uh, Israelite culture, but deeply offensive to God because they were worshiping this God of, of the Moabites. And, and so he's saying, listen, I get that, that people have been tempted into idolatry and sexual immorality for thousands of years. Look at verse 9. He gives another example. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. That's a reference to Numbers chapter 21 when the Israelites again got tired of God and, and grumbled against God and put him to the test. They accused God of doing wrong. And, uh, and as part of their discipline, they were bitten by poisonous snakes. And in this beautiful picture of the gospel in there, the way they're healed is, is he raises up a, a pole. And the Israelites have to look at this pole, which is a symbol of the cross and Jesus, and they're healed. He says, uh, testing the Lord is a temptation. Oh, man. <laughs> Have you ever spent time testing the Lord? Like saying, God, I'm not sure about that. I think you did wrong. It's a temptation when things don't go the way we want. Verse 10, testing turns into grumbling. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. This is a reference to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram who got in Moses' face and said, Moses, we're going to do a coup attempt here. We think your leadership stinks and we would rather just do this ourselves. Thank you very much. And they challenged this leadership and so grumbled against God. And in a moment, the, they were sitting there and God said, I'll show you who is really the one that I have selected to be the leader. And those three guys are sitting there and all of a sudden the ground just opens up and swallows them completely and closes back up. And, and what Paul is reminding them is here's another temptation to grumble. And the point is, is that for thousands of people, people th thousands of years, people have experienced temptation, lusting after evil. And if you don't think that you'll experience temptation, you're just foolish. Because we have in us a sin nature, each one of us. When we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to light, when we come to believe in Jesus Christ, when there is a spiritual rebirth in us, we are also given a new nature. But our old nature has not yet been vanquished. 
That will not happen until Jesus comes back a second time. And so we continually have in us a lusting for evil, a temptation. What do you crave? You know. I, it, it's been well documented by me on this stage many times that uh, I, I crave Coca-Cola. Like I crave it like it's the nectar of the gods, right? I mean, it's just this wonderful, amazing thing. The other day, uh, Clarissa loves Pepsi, and, uh, and it's just, to me, that's anathema, right? Like, that's horrible. And the other day, uh, my two youngest kids selected Pepsi over Coke. I was just deeply offended. They've, the air of their ways. But anyway, it's been well documented. For three years, I have not had a Coca-Cola. Three years now. And uh, not that I'm counting, but I am. And because I still crave it. By the way, uh, I just replaced it with coffee, right? Like you, one, one vice for another. But I know what it's like to crave something. You know in your heart what it's like to crave something. You know what the first step for any addict is? To admit that they're an addict. Alcoholic Anonymous, the 12-step process. The first step says, I am powerless over alcohol. Because that's the first step. We all have within us a natural pull back to the old world. And if you don't crave, if you don't know, rather, what you crave, you can't keep yourself from lusting after evil. We're all addicts to evil. You have a spiritual heritage and a privilege, but it's not enough. You'll still be tempted, so be aware of your cravings. Now in verse 11 and 12, Paul is going to give us sort of a summary of what he has just said. These things happen, verse 11, to them as examples. That's that word again from verse 6 just brought right over. These are examples and were written down as a warning sign for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. This idea of the fulfillment of the ages is this beautiful picture in the New Testament that all of the Bible has been leading up to this moment when Christ would die for the sins of the world, when he would rise again victorious, and when he would send his spirit to those who believe. This fulfillment of the gospel to all who would believe the gospel. It's this, this point to this. And then he says, in verse 12, so, in summary, if you think you are standing firm, a little cockiness, right? Be careful that you don't fall. And that takes us right up to our third point. How do we find victory over temptation? Not only do we need to be aware of our cravings, and not only do we not need to not get cocky, but the third thing is we need to find the emergency exit. Find the emergency exit exit. Uh, Clarissa and I flew recently. Some of you fly a lot. I don't tend to fly that much, but uh, every time I do, I'm, I'm kind of amazed at what happens. The, you're sitting on the airplane. You got buckled up. The flight attendants come up and down the aisle to make sure seat backs are up and tray tables are up and everyone's buckled in. And then they say, could I please have your full attention for a moment? Uh, we do a, a safety demonstration. And uh, Please take out your earbuds. Listen, I, I look around and nobody is, nobody is listening. Like they're all just in their own world, reading their book, listening to their music, whatever. Nobody's listening as a flight attendant tells them, you know, if the mask falls, 
you, you know, take care of your, yourself first so that you'll be breathing to take care of your child, right? Like look around and identify the emergency exits. No one's doing any of it. If we crash, like it's going to be mass chaos. People are going to be climbing over seats. I don't know where the emergency exit. They're going to be grabbing their luggage and, you know, making sure it's all in order before they get out and drown. I mean, it's like just crazy. Nobody knows where the, what's going on and nobody knows where the emergency exit is. But if we're going to find victory over temptation, we have to be aware of the emergency exits in our life. And so there are three points in finding an emergency exit. I didn't put these three as subpoints up here, so you'll just have to listen. I know it's craziness, but just uh, Paul says three things here. He says the first way to find an emergency exit is to know you're not alone. Somebody else has been through it. Verse 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to humanity, to men and women, to people. Except what is common. You are not alone. Your temptation is not unique. Maybe your temptation is something that you find so shameful that you can't discuss it with anybody. Maybe you're surrounded by people but feel like you're all alone in your temptation. But the shame of your struggle as it mounts, you think, No one gets my circumstance. But Paul reminds us that the first step to finding your emergency exit from temptation is just to know you're not alone. I guarantee that in the course of humanity, somebody has experienced the exact same temptation that you are experiencing. It's probably someone in this very room, most likely. You see, oftentimes emergency exits in our life are other people. You're not alone. Whatever you're tempted in, whatever you crave, whatever is just constantly in your path of temptation, somebody here has walked through it too. And the first step in knowing your emergency exit is just to say, I'm not alone. Someone else has done this as well. The second step in finding your emergency exit is to know that God is faithful. First of all, you're not alone. Second of all, God is faithful. Look at the text, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, this is not self-help. The secret to finding your emergency exit is not merely to say, gosh, I need to try harder. Maybe Dr. Phil has some resources for me so I can read about this. The secret to identifying emergency exit and temptation is to know that God is the one who is faithful. Our success as a Christian does not depend on our faithfulness, but rather God's. There's somebody here in this room who understands that and can walk with you. You're not alone and God is faithful. And the third piece of finding your emergency exit Right here in verse 13. You're not alone. God is faithful. And then you should look for the way out. Verse 13. When you are te- but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. This verse has been massively abused in our Christian world. We say God won't give you anything you can't bear. You can't handle how many times have you heard a Christian say this? Well, 
you know, I know you're going through a lot right now and you're suffering and you're under a lot, but God promised he won't give you anything you can't handle, so he must think a lot of you. Like, that's just baloney. That is not what this says, and that is not what the Bible says. And those are things that we say to each other as Christians because we just don't know what else to say, and so we got to say something, so we say something like that. That is not helpful. It's actually hurtful. It's not true. I mean, if we wanted to put that into a phrase, we would say, God won't give you more than he can handle. That's the truth. That is not what Paul is talking about in this verse. What Paul is talking about is temptation. And he says here that we should look for a way out. When you are tempted to sin, God will always provide a way out. Do you know where the, have you identified the emergency exits in this room? Some of you came in here and you're like trained, right? You know, okay, there's their sign there. There's the one there. I know how to get out. If something happens, if there's a fire, boom, I'm out of here, right? We should think about emergency exits like that rather than being on an airplane and going, I have you thought about where I would leave, right? Um, my mom grew up in a little town called Claremont, Iowa, way up in Northeast Iowa. And uh, after, she was like the last elementary class to graduate from their local elementary school before they consolidated and moved schools around. Uh, they lived in an old, old they, or they had an old building that was kind of a turn of the century elementary school kind of building. Three stories, all brick. Uh, and at some point, someone realized, you know, with two or three stories, if there's a fire, I don't even know if these kids could get out. How will we retrofit this with a fire escape? And so this is their great design. Put this picture up here. That is the awesome design of a fire escape. A slide where you can run if you're on the top floor and slide to safety. And you know, when they had a fire drill, I asked my mom about this, you can bet every kid knew where that exit was because they were so excited to go down the slide. Like, this is great. We're going, you know, booking down the slide and having a great time. Every kid in school knew where that emergency exit was. Do you and I know where the emergency exits are in our life. You know, the, part of the problem is that sometimes when we are in the midst of temptation and God is pro providing for us a way out, we sometimes don't really want to know where that emergency exit is. Isn't that true? Like, like when I tell my kids, uh, hey, while you're downstairs, pick up the garbage down there, right, on the floor. And five minutes later, did you do it? There wasn't any garbage, Dad. I'm like, look around, like, it's all over the place. You know, I just didn't want to know. It's like a selective seeing, right? Sometimes as Christians, we're like that. We just, we don't want to identify the emergency exit. But the truth is that God will provide one. Now, here's the shocking point, And here's where the illustration breaks down a little bit. The emergency exit for temptation is not necessarily escape from temptation. Look at what he says in the text. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out. Okay, good so far. So that you can stand up under it. Huh. Well, yeah, how, if, if it's an escape, why am I standing up under it? Why am I not free of the temptation? Some of you might be wondering this. Think about these Corinthians. 
their temptation was all about this meat sacrifice to idol peace. The weaker brother was tempted to violate their conscience sitting at a, maybe a festival of some sort and they were going to eat meat sacrificed to idols in violation of their conscience. The, the stronger brother who knew they were free in Christ and could do this was tempted to just violate their brother and sister in Christ by eating and expressing this freedom in front of them. And the temptation was constantly on them. In Corinthian culture, there was no escaping it. You couldn't just go, hey, I'm out I would like to not have any more pagan meat sacrifice to idols. It was everywhere. There's no escaping this. The solution was not to just run. The solution is to lean into Christ. I brought some sticks here. So um, some of us feel like this, right? Like we feel like the burden and the weight of temptation is just bearing down on us and we can't hardly bear it anymore and we're gonna, it's going to break at some point, right? Are you impressed? I, I, I pre-cut it, just so you know, all right? <laughs> true, true story. But, you know, we feel like, you know, like I can't bear the weight and I'm going to snap. And so what we really want is just to say, God, just take the, give me the emergency, just take the temptation away. You know, like, okay. But here's the illustration that Paul says. He says, so that you can stand up under it. Clarissa found this stick in Colorado. Uh, I don't think I could break this stick even if I snapped it over my knee. I think I'd break my knee, so I'm not going to do that for you today. But like, if you were to put the stick next to this one and try to break it, it isn't happening. And of course... Paul is telling us that this stick is Jesus. That the way out is not just relieving the pressure, but that Jesus comes alongside us in the midst of our temptation. And he makes us strong when we are not. And friends, you may not eliminate the temptation, but God will provide a means for you to stand up under it. And the emergency exit is embracing Christ. It's embracing the opportunity he has for you to lean into him, for him to come over it. How do we find victory over temptation? Well, we don't get cocky. We identify our cravings, and then we find the emergency exit who is Jesus and lean into him. And this is what makes us stronger. We're going to sing a song, closing. It's all about this idea that Jesus is the strength in the midst of our temptation to lean into him. As our worship team comes up, would you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today confessing that we are tempted and that temptation is large in our lives and so right now we confess to you our cravings. God, we are humble. And Lord, we ask that you would provide for us this emergency exit that runs to Jesus. Let all of our hope and strength be found in him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.